Well, lust is a word with such negative connotations. And I mean lust, not last. Just picking up the Australian accent there for you. Uh, as you look throughout the world, um, to lust after something or, or someone to, to kind of deeply desire it is almost kind of a misplaced desire, isn't it? It's to seek with such desperation something which you should not have, a thirst or an appetite for, for something that is off, off limits. Now, we've seen a lot of that uh, in the papers recently. Uh, with the leaking of databases and people doing things they shouldn't have, driven by lust. Lust is generally so negative. That's how it's been used throughout history, and it's almost exclusively how the word is used throughout the Bible, with that negative connotation, except for two places. Two places where lust is possibly used positively. In Matthew 13, verse 17, Jesus says, uh, For I assure you, many prophets and righteous people longed, literally lusted, to see the things you did see, yet didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. Here Jesus is talking about the deep desire of the prophets of past. To, to see and hear the final fulfillment of the things God was promising through the prophets, through the promises to Abraham, to find their fulfillment in Jesus. They had this deep desire to see and hear them kind of finalized, but they, they didn't get to do it. But here, as Jesus speaks, he's saying, you're hearing the final revelation. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For every one of God's promises is yes in Him. Jesus has come to fulfill God's promises, and the prophets longed. Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets longed. They literally, Jesus says, lusted to see the fulfillment of all that God was promising. Now, I take it that that lust was a good thing. It was a deep desire they had. And so here you kind of go, okay, there's a positive use. The only other time in the whole of the New Testament that the word lust is used positively is in verse 17 of a passage that Michael just read for us. Have a look. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17. But as for us, brothers, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired, literally lusted, and made every effort to return and see you face to face. That word translated desire there is the same word that's translated lusted throughout the whole New Testament. And Paul adds to the word. It's not just a little bit of lust. (laughs) He adds to it with the word greatly. We greatly lusted. What was his great desire and passion? What was the thing that that he, he sought that kind of captivated his mind, that drove him forward, that meant he was thinking about all the time? It was this church in Thessalonica. It was these people. He had a deep gospel passion for these people that he's writing this letter to. Paul loved these people. And before your head kind of goes into some weird place and go, maybe there was something kinky going on here. No, he loved them like family. So stop it and go, no, there's a deep desire for this whole church to be serving Jesus and growing together and being kind of together in him. He loved them like family. He begins in verse 17 that, um, saying, we were forced to leave you. Now that word there, forced, is literally we were orphaned from you. You're kind of like, well, Paul is, is saying some pretty strong stuff. We were orphaned from you. You are family. I've been orphaned from you, pulled away. So deep is Paul's love for this church. So strong is, is his desire to be with them. That's being ripped away. It feels like being orphaned. 
You've got to get for a moment the strength of Paul's writing here, of his love for this church. They were family. How great would it be to be part of a church that saw one another as family like Paul sees them? There's something attractive about that, isn't there? You might be here today thinking through, is church for me? Is Jesus the real deal? Is this a community of people I want to be a part of? I want to say that what you're seeing here is the deep desire of one of the key players of Christianity saying, church should be a place where people feel like family. It should be good. You might have been hurt in the past. People might have done all sorts of things, said all sorts of things, and it feels anything but family. But let me assure you, that is not how it is supposed to be. Let's keep looking with me and see how Paul speaks of his love for these people. Chapter 2, verse 19. He says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. (laughs) Do you get this picture here? He's kind of like a proud parent looking forward to the day their child stands on their own two feet with their own life. Um, longing for the day that they maybe win a race or that they kind of they, they, they stand and, and get praised for who they are. So Paul longs for the last day when Jesus returns, seeing the Thessalonians trusting in Jesus, having persevered. He stands back and longs for the day he stands back and say, look, you are my hope, my crown, my joy. Literally, that word, that crown is laurel wreath. You know, the ones they put on you when you go, you see the kind of car racing and they win the end and they stand up on the podium and they put like a, a laurel wreath around you and they kind of spray champagne everywhere going, you're the winner, you've won, this is good. Right? Paul is saying that this church is his champagne spray and laurel wreath of the end. It's his glory and his joy. He's so tied to the, the kind of perseverance of this church that he finds his hope and joy in them staying to the end. So deep is his connections to these friends that he says, my heart is kind of tied to you. My joy is clouded if your joy does not continue. My hope is dimmed if your hope is not there. Do you see this relationship? It's a sense where Paul is kind of, in some ways, dependent on them. His joy and his hope is, is really dependent on them persevering to the end. Now, I've never been in the position of a parent waiting for an expectant child to get home. Um, Our kids, our oldest, Nathaniel's eight, so he doesn't ever really go out on his own. He's always got someone with him, but I'm sure that day will come. Um, But my experience of coming home quite late to to my parents was that I was always greeted, no matter what time I came in, whether it was 12 o'clock, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., a voice from mum would say, is that you, Ro? Now, I'm an only child. So if at 2 o'clock in the morning it isn't me coming in and Dad's in bed next to her, there's problems and it's more than that, right? There's someone else in the house. But Mum was always kind of just awake, lightly sleeping until I'd quietly shut the door and she'd wake up and then she could go back to sleep again. She had a concern for me without fail that kept her awake and anxiousness to make sure I was okay. And this is the position that Paul is in. Right, he's in Athens. He's removed from the Thessalonians. They're in Thessalonica. He's only been with them for three Saturdays. Then he gets ripped away, he says, by Satan, but pulled away through the persecutions. And now he's like 500 kilometers away. But he, he wants to be back with his church. He, he wants to know they're okay. 
It's like he's lying awake at night and there's just blackness. He doesn't know where are they? Are they still trusting him, this church that he loves? He wants to make sure they're still trusting in Jesus so that what they did amongst them would not be in vain. That their hope, their joy and their glory would be coming at the end when Jesus returns for they will be still trusting in Jesus. Just listen to the way he speaks at the start of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, (laughs) we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. In verse 5, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Paul gets what's at stake for these Thessalonians. He knows the pull of the world around them. He understands the temptations to give in when the persecutions rise, when the temptations come, when Satan says, just go this way. He doesn't really love you. It's not worth really giving all of your life to him. The temptations and persecutions we all face, when families tell you to give up on that God thing, You've become a little bit extreme, you know. Your friends say, I get that you like Jesus, but man, he doesn't have to take over your whole life, does he? Or when someone points a gun at your head and says, renounce Jesus or I'll shoot. Paul knows that on that last day when Jesus returns, what matters most is not the number of zeros in your bank balance. Not the number of times that you took a holiday to Rarotonga and whether or not You are trusting in Jesus is key to Paul's picture of where they are at the end. Often we're tempted to think that the main deal in the Christian faith is people coming to Jesus. You hear people so excited and celebrating the moment when people actually put their trust in who he is. They're convinced historically that um, he was who the Bible says he was. and, and, And they then serve him. And we're rightly excited about that. It's a good thing to be excited about. But what Paul shows here is that perseverance in the Christian faith, continuing, making sure you're still trusting in Jesus, is just as important, isn't it? I mean, it's no good. You go, yeah, I I believe Jesus. I follow him. Everything's sweet. And then we just leave it behind one or two or three or five years later, or 10 or 15 or 20 or 50. Perseverance is the sole indicator of a true Christian faith. How do we know if we're Christian? That we remain in Christ till the end. And what we're about to see is that God uses us, you and me, to make sure that we're standing in Christ at the end. He uses one another to help us persevere. And so Paul has this deep, deep desire to see people not only established in the news of Jesus, but persevering growing in him throughout the rest of their life. And so Paul's gospel passion, his desire for these people, results in action. It results in action. For the sake of the Thessalonians, Paul sends Timothy and he's left alone in Athens. Um, Silas has the thought gone somewhere else. And when he says we, he's talking about him. He is there by himself without many around him at all. It's not like he's got a huge party of people and it's like all brilliant. It's costly. 
for Paul to send Timothy back, but he sends Timothy back. He, he goes under the cost of not having others around to encourage him. The sacrificial cost of, of losing that encouragement so that this church might be built up and encouraged. Gospel passion is costly. Being called to be a Christian and caring for your brothers and sisters is costly. And I want you to be, I want you to be reminded that this is no walk in the park for Paul. Let, let me read to you just from 2 Corinthians, what Paul's life was like for the sake of the gospel. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers in the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and lacking clothing. Gospel passion requires sacrifice. Seeing others persevere in the gospel is costly. Church is not a place of comfort a place of individualistic feeding where you we get fed on smooth it's a place where we come to encourage in a costly way it's a place where throughout the week we encourage we need to understand this because gospel passion is what we are called to do there'll be times in our church hopefully lots of times where people leave the connect group you're a part of to go and start another one and you feel that kind of, that loss of maybe two or three or four people leaving your small group of people that you've, you've been with for a couple of years that you really get on well with because they need to go and start another one so more people might know Jesus, more people might be encouraged. That's a good thing. We need to bear that cost for the sake of others being encouraged and built up. Or, or maybe when we um, start another church, another church plant from here, whether that's in West Auckland or on the North Shore or in Hamilton, and 30, 50, 80 people leave us and go and say, we can actually go over here. Some of us might even relocate for the sake of seeing a new kind of gospel hub start up so people might hear the news of Jesus. And we'll be like, oh, this is not ideal. Gospel passion is costly because seeing people persevere and the gospel go out is costly. We must remember in that end, that, that final day, that glory and hope and joy of sharing with these people who come to know Jesus and persevered in the gospel because of the way God has used us. Gospel passion is costly. There are bigger things at stake than our comfort. Um, it makes me think through how we need to commit as a church, commit to one another as a, as a family. Commit to staying around as long as we can and encourage one another as long as we can. Do you see Paul's desire to be with them? And he's got other churches to plan, other things to do. And sometimes I think I'm <laughs> convicted of, of how much he wants to stay with them and how little so often our culture around us thinks, oh, it's fine, just swap and change wherever we like. Change to a different church, go to a different place. Yeah, we can change jobs, yes. We can change cities or countries, yes. But surely it shouldn't be at the expense of the perseverance of others. Do you know, we live in the most transient nation on the planet. 
survey of 139 countries and over 260,000 people um, came back that one in four Kiwis have changed cities within New Zealand in the last five years. One in four. There is no other country on the planet that has done that that much. Uh, it's, it's Syria is under war, right? There's kind of amazing unrest happening there. Even that, it's only 22%. <laughs> We're at 26 The air we breathe in this society says, oh yeah, just go here or just go there. Or maybe it's because of just job needs. We need to move uh, cities because of where jobs are at. But it's just in the air we breathe. We chop and change so quickly, so haphazardly. Now, sometimes we're going to need to change. I'm not saying we shouldn't or we can't. But it should cost, shouldn't it? It should be a deep desire for those that we're leaving to say, I care for you. I want to see you keep serving Jesus. I want to do everything I can to be part of this family and to see you persevering to the end. And if we're thinking about where we're going to move to, how am I able to help and encourage others to persevere wherever I'm going? To use whatever they are, whatever means we're, we're, we're changing locations for, for the sake of the gospel. Being there physically was immensely important for Paul. The only two things that pulled him away... Um, was Satan in verse 8 of chapter 2. And then throughout Acts 17 and 18, you see the need to share the gospel and the church strengthening other places as well. That's the reason Paul moved. Now, I'm not saying we should kind of never be away from church. Holidays are a great thing. I want to encourage you to rest. We need to have a good theology of rest. God has rested. We're in the seventh day still. Uh, He's offering eternal rest. Rest is good. Rest is something we should long for. Rest is something we should build into our weeks and at least have a day off where we're kind of not working and we can rest and and sit back and remember God's in control. And we should have holidays, times to be refreshed and to kind of get away and get a new perspective and think through who God is and what he's done. But perhaps our view of pleasure, recreation, our desire to move cities and hop around the country is a, is a little bit skewed by the culture that we live in. Maybe living in the most transient nation on earth rubs off on us in a way that we don't let God's word shape and mold us. What culture does is it kind of, I think, coats our hearts with Teflon. Let me explain this for a second. You know how Teflon is that stuff that they put on frying pans to make sure your eggs don't stick. And that when you finish cooking, you know, the eggs slide around and everything's all nice and, and smooth and it doesn't stick to the fry pan on the bottom and you've got to scrape it off and soak it for ages. Um, I think the kind of um, general vibe of our culture with people moving so quickly, we all tend to, just out of self-preservation, coat our hearts with Teflon. We kind of hold people at a little bit of a distance so it doesn't hurt as much when they move. We don't invest in the lives of people as much because we know, well, a quarter of us are going to move cities in the next five years. And so we don't do what Paul is saying we should do. Now, Paul invests 100% and has to move and it hurts. And so it should. We need to be a church that is committed to one another. doesn't keep the distance from one another. It doesn't have that professional, oh yes, we keep it all nice and cordial. We need to be a church that shares our lives with one another, that loves one another deeply, that cares for each other, that longs that on that last day, 
our joy will be complete by the encouraging of one another to keep standing in Jesus. As I stand back and think through this Christian faith, you know, it's so attractive. I want to be a part of a, of, of a group of people like that. I am a part of a group of people like that. If you're checking out Jesus and you're, you're here thinking, is this something I could, I could do? I want to say, this is pretty attractive. People who commit to one another because they'll be spending an eternity together. Well, if you're in Jesus and this is your church, then we are family. And just like Paul and the Thessalonians, uh, we're family. Uh, We're here for one another. We, We depend on one another to see one another persevere to the end. And so Paul undergoes the isolation, the pain, the hurt of being left alone to see Timothy do two things. Gospel passion seeks to strengthen and encourage one another. Have a look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Literally, that appointed is we have had our lives laid down for this. We laid down our lives. We give our all to see you strengthened and encouraged. What a great leader. (laughs) You're like, I love this guy. And what we see is that the the antidote to giving up on your faith, when persecution comes, when Satan lurks around trying to deceive, which, which he always is, persecution is always waiting around the corner. Satan is always trying to deceive us. And the moment we think, Either of those two things aren't likely to happen, that the persecution won't come or that Satan can't trick me. Satan's won. He's gone, great, your guard's down, watch this. Boom, and away we walk. Now, here is the antidote to giving up on the faith. It's to strengthen and encourage one another. Your eternity will be defined by others strengthening and encouraging you and others' eternity will be defined by your strengthening and encouraging them. Under God, letting God use you through that. But just hear the weight of those words, eternity, forever. Paul wants to continually apply the same gospel that saved the Thessalonians to their lives so they might continue in him, to our lives so we might be sustained to the lives of those in our church so we might continue. Notice, how do we know what the encouragement and the strengthening is? Because Paul tells us that Timothy is a co-worker in the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel that's doing the work. I once went to a church and um, someone said, you know, I'm really just not encouraged when people sing. Um, (laughs) Actually, I'll use Nathaniel. Here's an even funnier illustration. I was chatting to Nathaniel a while ago, our eldest. Um, I should really pay him for these illustrations. But anyway, um, about singing in church. And I'm like, well, you know, why do we sing in church, Nathaniel? He's like, well, I don't know. I don't really like it. I'm like, well, the whole reason that we come to church, the whole reason that we're here isn't to worship God. That's not why we're at church. We come to church to worship. That's like saying we come to, to church to breathe. Of course, you're going to breathe at church. Of course, you're going to worship when you're at church. You worship God everywhere. You worship God with your whole life, right? The, the distinctive of, of, of church isn't worship. 
the distinctive of church is encouraging one another, letting the Word of God dwell amongst us to encourage one another. So I said to Nathaniel, so Nathaniel, when we sing, the whole point of that is to praise God, but also to encourage one another as a vertical and a horizontal. And um, he's like, and so that's why we want to stand up when we sing and, and sing with loud voices and encourage one another. And he's like, I don't find that very encouraging. <laughs> Obviously, because I'm sitting down. I'm like, how does he do that logic at eight? Kind of, so we went, yeah, well, maybe you need to correct what your encouragement is about because it's not just about you being encouraged. I was part of a church where people were like, oh, I'm just not encouraged by that, so I just sit here. The point is we're here to encourage one another in the gospel. It's not just feeling built up and like, yeah, I'm feeling encouraged today. Woo, that's great. It's not a motivational talk. It's letting God's word bear fruit in our lives so that we might persevere to the end. So in the way we sing, we remind one another of truths that are true about who God is and what he's done. So as we have morning tea together, we remind one another of of what we're here for and ask one another how we're going and share our lives together. Church is for the building up of one another. And you know what? That pleases God. God isn't pleased by someone having an emotional experience out the front looking crazy or in their seats where, you know, they just feel this amazing presence of God. And he's not pleased by what pleases God is people serving him to the end. Now, it doesn't mean we can't have emotional experiences. God is an emotional God. We should be overwhelmed at times uh, with the truth of what he's done for us. Absolutely. Our singing should not be devoid of emotion. But we need to be, we need to be about encouraging one another in the gospel. And it's this work of gospel encouragement that Paul sends Timothy to do. To, to bear fruit in the lives of these Thessalonians so they might continue. It's, it's face-to-face relationships. You know, you can't be encouraged just by blog posts. Sure, there is some encouragement. Paul writes a letter telling them how encouraged he is, but it's not enough for him. Did you see that? He sends Timothy podcasts, watching videos of preachers, doing church at home on the couch each Sunday morning on Shine TV is not what Paul is talking about. If they come up with some way to do holographic representations, it's still not the real deal because you're not there. There's something about physically being there for one another, for this church, so much so that Paul goes under the suffering of sending Timothy away that he might be with them. It's great to say, I'm praying for church on Sunday, but if we're not here, we can't encourage each other. If we're not in one another's lives, well, the encouragement we have will be far less. That's why you can't be a mature Christian and stay at home. You can't do church online. You might hear helpful things, but you have no one actually say to you, hey, your walk isn't matching your talk. Hey, how are you going at putting Jesus first in your marriage? Hey, you know, it looks like your studies are important to you, but perhaps a little too important. Because we won't be sharing our lives together. Paul sends Timothy to be there. As a church, we need to be there for each other. Now, we need to be careful here as we apply what Paul is saying about the Thessalonians to us. Um, Paul, he's got a unique role. He's the kind of church planter there. He's the one who founded the church. He's an an apostle as well. He's the one who, as he writes this, it it is God's word. 
Uh, he's different to us in that we haven't planted a church here. In some ways, the, the kind of clear application is to me as the one who's planted a church at Auckland EV. Um, it's kind of saying, Rowan, as EV's pastor, make sure you love your church. Make sure you share your life with the church God has put you to serve. Make sure you strengthen and encourage your church. Uh, interestingly, it's, it's not the role of a pastor just to kind of counsel people all the time. To be sitting in, 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 alongside people and drinking cups of teas with people. The role of the, of the pastor is to equip the saints for works of service. To teach the truth of the gospel and let God's word mold and shape people by his spirit. And so I need to hear Paul here strongly saying to me, love the church you've been put to serve. And I want to say, like Paul, I really do find it a privilege to serve you guys at Auckland EV. It is such a joy to be amongst you, to see the way God's changing you and shaping you. Uh, it is my joy and hope and crown that we'll spend an eternity together. Uh, you know, and it grieves me when people are kind of walking away from Jesus or when people um, are making decisions to, to not put Jesus first. I'm like, no, I, I want you to be there in the end. It hurts. But I, it is such a great privilege to have this position. Uh, and the way that we do it here at Auckland EV is I can't pastor everyone at church. I'm not able to kind of get into the lives of everyone. And so that's why we've set up connect groups. Really, if you are in a connect group, a small group that meets throughout the week, then your first pastor is your connect group leader. They're the ones who are in your life weekly. They're the ones that they're sharing their lives and homes with you. And they're really your primary pastor at church. If you're not in a connect group, you'll get far less pastoral care at Auckland EV. Because that's the way that we, we kind of help people to be equipped to serve the church and people to be really in the lives of one another. Like Paul sending Timothy into the inner lives of the Thessalonians, so our connect group leaders are sent into the inner lives of the church to strengthen and encourage with great gospel passion. That's what they're about. And if you're not in one, I want to say, please join one. Be part of a connect group. Take the time out of your week to encourage others and let others encourage you. Is it biblically mandated? No, not at all. You know, do, do we have to go to two things a week, church and connect group? No, the Bible doesn't say that. Although the apostles met morning and evening daily. You want to take the kind of biblical model, that's what they did. So, you know, but hey, we don't, it's not like that's how we're saved, by going to church and going to connect group. No, we're saved by trusting in Jesus. And we should so love one another that we invest in each other's lives so that we are encouraging each other and strengthening one another. And then you kind of step back and see that's, that's the role of, of me as the pastor, then the connect group leader in the connect groups, but also of, of one another. It's your role. <laughs> All throughout Scripture, this language of one another is used in 1 John to love one another. Um, 1 Peter, to earnestly love one another. James, pray for one another. Uh, don't complain about one another. Be hospitable to one another. Confess our sins to one another. Join in deep partnership with one another. Paul's not just talking about him. He's not just talking about the pastors of the church. He's talking about us all. This is our role. 1 Thessalonians 5, in this very letter, he says, encourage and build up each other. Pursue what is good for one another. Pursue it. And in this very section, verse 12, chapter 3, may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. It's not just for Paul. It's for us all. You notice that love is to be for one another and also for everyone. It's not just to be this insular little community where we look after Christians. It's to be love for Christians and the world. 
And that does seem to be a priority. We need to care for our family. But we want more people to join this family. And so we want to love the world around us. Which is one of the reasons why supporting um, sponsored children through tea, you can be doing that. It's only one way. It's not the way we all have to do it. But it's one way to do that. As I sit back and hear what God is saying to us this morning, I want to ask, do you see the importance of actively following up one another? Actively being in the lives of each other as we share the news of Jesus, of praying for one another, of calling to see how we're going. Not with everyone, we don't need to do it with everyone, but with a few. We need to have at least one or two people that we're actually opening our lives up to, that, that they know how we're going, that we're honest with. I'm not saying everyone needs to be an extrovert. The Bible's not saying that at all. But it is saying you need to be taking off that Teflon coat of your heart and sharing your life with those around you so that they might endure and persevere to the end, so you might endure and persevere to the end. And so Paul acts. He sends Timothy and he prays. Look at what he prays in verse 10. We pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Wow, even a church started by the great apostle Paul is lacking in their faith in some way. I immediately go, what's lacking? What, 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 what haven't they got? You know, I want to fix it. It's what guys want to do. We want to fix holes, fix broken stuff. When we hear something's broken, we want to fix it rather than just listen. And so here, I'm like, what is to be fixed? But as you think about it, it's kind of like us, isn't it? There's still work to be done, even though we've trusted Jesus, for those of you who have. Even though we've put our faith in Him and we want Him to be the King of our lives, there's still work to be done. Isn't that every single one of our stories? We aren't yet what we should be or what we will be. There's never a point this side of Jesus' return where we will all be what we should be, where any of us will be what we should be. We need to keep working on one another, loving one another, maturing one another, growing one another, helping one another to keep enduring, to keep coming. It's why we need to make disciples who make disciples of of all nations. It's why we need to keep upskilling and working out how God's word molds the way I think and live. So I need to be continually growing in our love and knowledge of God. Not so we get some Christian brownie chart points. Look at me, I'm great. Look at what I've done. I can recite Westminster Confession in Latin. You know, even though it wasn't written in Latin. (laughs) There you go. Um, We're to do it because we care and we have a deep desire for those we are called to be God's family with, that they will be standing on that last day, that they will be our joy and our crown and our hope. What greater endeavor could you be involved in than seeing others stand firm in Jesus for eternity? Is there anything more noble? There is nothing else that lasts for eternity. There is nothing else that brings such joy either then or now. And on hearing the report back from Timothy, mid-writing this letter, Paul is so excited that these Thessalonians are still trusting in Jesus. Have a look at verse 8. For now we live, if you stand firm in the Lord. Now we live? (laughs) The news of the gospel word, the bearing fruit in the lives of his church family is like a gasp of air to Paul. 
you know when you've been swimming underwater? You try and, have you ever tried to swim the length of a pool underwater? A really long pool, you know, a 25 meter one. I did that once. It was really cold. And I'm swimming and I'm just going flat stick. I'm like, this is not good. Like, I want to make the end and you start like this because you, you want to breathe and you touch the end and come out and you go. That's what it's like for Paul when he hears the news of these Thessalonians still trusting in Jesus. That's the type of love he has for them. It's, oh, I'm alive again. <laughs> my prayers, my concerns, the encouragement and the strengthening of the church family is working. And these people are still in Christ. And, and hear, hear more, the fullness of Christian life is found in others persevering in the gospel. The fullness of Christian life is found in others persevering in the gospel. If you're not involved in that work of encouraging someone, some others in your church family, then you're not living the fullness of the Christian life. He is alive, he says, because they are alive. Have a look at verse 9. Paul says this, How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? You see that with this gospel passion comes great joy for Paul. It's not all him pouring out. There's great joy that comes from being part of the church family. How we can thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you. There is this great joy in the hard and risky work of opening up your life to others to strengthen and encourage them. I can personally testify to that. I love my job. I love the, the, the work of seeing people serve Jesus and growing in Him. To see you strengthen and encourage. There's nothing else on, on the face of the planet I'd rather be doing than that. Is it stressful? Yes. <laughs> you know, does it exhaust me? At times, absolutely. Uh, are there days that I want to give up? Yeah, I reckon about monthly. I'm like, what are we doing this for? Is it really worth it? It's nothing to do with that you guys are bad in any sense or shape. It's just hard work. Does the concern for others to keep walking with Jesus weigh me down? Yes. Yes. But there's an incredible joy to be freed up to do all that I can do to see you perfect on that last day. That I wouldn't swap any of it for. Not in any shape or form. Like I, I thank God for you as a church. It is such a privilege to serve you and to see you continuing in Jesus. And I, and I want to encourage you. To keep opening your hearts to one another. Keep building up one another in the faith. Do all that you can to see one another. And that includes me. I'm not above this. To encourage me and you to be standing firm in Jesus on the last day. That is what Paul's life is about. That's what we need to be about. The fight is real. Satan is lurking. The persecutions are coming. But great joy and hope is on offer from the God who's sent his son to die in our place and offer us life. And it's our role as his church to keep that news, that gospel, alive in the hearts of one another until Jesus comes back and we're presented perfect in Christ. That is our hope and our joy and our crown. Let's pray. Father God, it is such a privilege to be part of a church that you have gathered together be part of a group of people who've been freed from death because of what Jesus has done. And Lord, we long that that news of Jesus would keep bearing fruit in the lives of all of us. We pray, Lord, that you'd keep using us to encourage and strengthen one another, that we'd 
keep coming and investing our lives in each other, that, Lord, you would strip that Teflon coat from our hearts, that we wouldn't hold one another at a distance, but would really love one another and the world that you've put us in. Lord, it is such a privilege to know you and to be part of your work of seeing people stand firm in Jesus to the end. We pray today, Lord, for those here thinking through who you are and what you've done. Ask, Lord, that you would show just the attractiveness of a group of people that are committed to one another. That you would, you would show the hope of eternal life. And that that hope would motivate all of us, Lord, not to pretend we've got our lives together, but to share our broken lives and point to the one who was broken for us so we might have his perfect life that lasts forever. Lord, we ask you to fix our eyes on your son and free us to love your people. Amen.